You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we thank you for gathering us together to worship you. And now with your word open, may our minds and hearts be opened by your Holy Spirit to the truths that do transform and guide us in life. We ask this in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, when I saw that I was selected to preach from this particular text, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, I was really thankful. This text means a lot to me. I've been preaching since 1976, and I teach preaching at Beeson Divinity School. I am an introvert. I don't get my kicks out of public speaking at all. But I love the Word of God, and I do believe I'm called to proclaim His Word. And this text is just a beautiful paragraph describing both uh, Paul's manner and the meaning and the impact of good preaching. Now, what do you think in your mind is bad preaching? I think it's human words framed by human preferences delivered in human strength. I guess I would capture it by kind of uh, the cartoon bubble speech. Where the person's talking, but it's, it's really not having any kind of impact. The Apostle Peter said, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Now, behind that statement is a lot of confidence. Confidence not in the human speaker, but confidence that God indeed has spoken. Another text in the letter to the church at Colossae, Paul says, We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them fully mature in Christ Jesus. To this end, I labor with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Uh, the other week, my daughter gave uh, a notebook to my four-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Micah, black notebook that just wasn't being used, and she thought he could occupy his time by writing in it. He doesn't know how to write and doesn't know how to read. He immediately seriously took the notebook to the kitchen table, opened it up, and started writing in it. And Kennelly said, what are you writing? I'm writing a sermon. <laughs> and she said, well, what's the title? You cannot run away from God. Uh, we're immersed as a family in preaching and, and writing sermons. Uh, both uh, Kennerly and her husband uh, prepare sermons and lead a church. It's interesting that Paul, when he went to Corinth, went with a, with a strategy that was designed not to work humanistically. The Corinthian proclaimers, the Corinthian teachers and speakers had their own sort of aura and style and rhetorical flourish and their networks and their connections. 
He went to Corinth, and it's described in Acts 18, and was a tent maker and a leather worker through the week. And then on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and preached about Christ. And he would have preached about Christ in such a way as to draw the whole Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi as a message pointing to the Christ and the cross and the power of the resurrection. When Timothy and Silas showed up in Corinth, then Paul left the leatherworking business and devoted himself full-time to preaching. He describes that preaching as without eloquence, that he came into Corinth with fear and trembling. Now, what did he fear? He did not fear speaking before people. He did not fear uh, what people would do to him because of his message. He feared that in some way he would let God down, that the message would not be proclaimed with the power that it deserved. In this letter to the church at Corinth, he says, I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that's exactly what's here on this plaque. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I think that's what was the fear. The fear that somehow he would not proclaim the gospel. And so he bent over backwards using a strategy that by human standards was bound to fail. And if it did succeed, it would only be because of the power of the Spirit of God. One night, the Lord reassured Paul in a vision that he was doing what he should be doing and that he would be preserved in doing it and he would have many opportunities. But it's just interesting. He says, I didn't do it with eloquence or with wisdom. And yet when I read Paul, I read a very eloquent communicator. Augustine took up this issue this early church theologian, and said, Paul didn't aim for eloquence. His concern was to express the wisdom of God, which was foolishness in the eyes of the world. But eloquence followed that wisdom. So the power of the rhetoric was there, and Augustine used Romans 5, 1 through 5, as an illustration of just how eloquent Paul was, not aiming for it, but eloquence not shrinking from this wisdom. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. That's eloquent. That's powerful. But you don't arrive at that eloquence by aiming at a style. And I read Paul in saying, you know, in his concern not to, to come with fear and trembling and not to be eloquent, is that 
He did not in any way want to manipulate people or craft some kind of speech that uh, overwhelmed people so that they were going to respond. He wanted people to respond by the Spirit of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the cross and to the resurrection. That was his concern. The meaning of good preaching is expressed here in a line. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He had just come from Athens and he had reasoned in the Areopagus and I don't think though Paul is distancing himself from the, from the strategy in Athens. I think it's the same strategy in Corinth that was in Athens because he preached the cross, he preached the resurrection in Athens and that's what produced the, the negative reaction. Also positive, people came to Christ. But this was his strategy. A clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I resolved to know nothing I was with you except Jesus Christ and crucified. Not as a simplification. Not as a reduction. But as the very essence of the gospel. This came home to me in the early 80s when I attended probably the best theological conference I've ever been to. It's a shame when it comes first. Fifteen theologians from Latin America and fifteen theologians from North America. We were in a village. We slept on cots for three days. We ate around one big table. All the papers were presented around that table. And we really reasoned together. We really thought together. And I remember John Howard Yoder that had written a fairly famous book in 1972, The Politics of Jesus, tall, lean, long hair, standing up with his Bible and tracing the message of the cross in every issue confronting the church at Corinth. He took the cross and he planted it in the issue of disunity saying, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Just one-liners. To those proud of their tolerance of sexual immorality, Paul said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. To the issue of fleeing from sexual immorality because of the cross, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He advised believers to refrain from eating meat offered to idols if it affected a weaker brother. This weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. He warned believers against using social positions and income to humiliate other believers. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. All that to say is every issue. He takes the cross and he plants it in the middle of the issue in the light of what Jesus Christ sacrificed for you and what God in Christ has done for you. How then do you live in the light of this particular concern? Now the impact of good preaching. The manner of it fear and trembling without eloquence, but yet the wisdom of God, the meaning I resolved to know nothing I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and now the impact. 
my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Reason is a gift that God has given so that we would recognize truth, not invent it. The meaning of life does not rest on what we speculate or our preferences or even our proofs. This is the humility of living under the Word of God that God Himself has disclosed His truth, His way. A truth that we would never know apart from that disclosure. He uses an interesting analogy, Paul does in the the second chapter, He says, how do people know what you're thinking? No one knows what you're thinking but you. He said, that's true with God. No one knows what God is thinking unless God speaks and reveals himself. And that is exactly what God has done. He has spoken. And therefore, we humbly submit to that. This is the meaning, really, of humility in a Christian sense. Humility is not the way Aristotle might have framed it in terms of knowing your station in life, knowing what class you belong to. No, humility is an understanding that I submit under the revelation of God, I submit to that truth. It is a belief that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him. And therefore, As H. Richard Niebuhr said, this is a humble pride or a proud humility because it rests not in yourself, but it rests in a submission to that Word of God and to the truth of God. I remember one night in San Diego where I was pastoring at the time where John Stott, the well-known Anglican priest uh, who died in uh, 2011 at the age of 90, a wonderful expositor of, of uh, the Word of God and a leader in evangelicalism, uh, a tremendous benefit to the developing countries and to, uh, to seminaries and pastors and churches around the world and a love for students uh, into his very old age. Well, he came to our church one night. He was in town and he was uh, preaching from Ephesians And his exposition was just great. I mean, the the sense of authority, the sense of understanding, the sense of knowledge, communicating the Word of God without trappings, without sort of anecdotes and illustrations, not trying to keep people with him except through the power of the, the movement of the truth of God. He could have gone all night for me. But he preached powerfully that night. Well, after the service, a friend who had actually come to Christ through the ministry at the church came up to me after, he's in his 30s. He said, that old man was so authoritarian, I didn't like him at all. Who does he think he is? And I said, John, John, he wasn't speaking in his own authority or in his own way. In fact, it was free from style. He was simply communicating the powerful word of God to us tonight. 
The Apostle Paul's description of the wisdom of God resonates well, I think, with how truth ought to be communicated to us. And with this, I'll close. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who had known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.